Good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? I hope so. If you don't have one, I hope that you grab one from the pew rack there in front of you or behind you, beside you, somewhere near you. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, the end of Galatians chapter 5, so that you can follow along as we study God's Word together. I heard, I heard a preacher the other day talking about the importance of, of having your Bible open while you listen to preaching so that you can see that, that what is coming out of the preacher's mouth is not originating with him, uh, so that you can see that this is coming from God's Word. Like that's, that's My job is to preach God's Word to you. Not, not my thoughts and opinions, but God's Word. And, and one of the best ways to make sure that's happening is to have God's Word in front of you. So I appreciate that thought from, from that preacher. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at one passage of Scripture, the same passage of Scripture for the last four weeks. It's a passage that we need. It's one of those passages that is not necessarily difficult to understand, but it is certainly difficult to apply, to obey. And we want to be a people who obey God's word, not just the people who understand God's word. We want to heed the word of James when he tells us not to be mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word, right? And such obedience to the word of God will not be easy and it will not be natural. But because God has commanded and because God has directed us toward this, such obedience will be empowered by the Lord. In other words, he does not leave us to our own devices for our obedience to his word, but rather he empowers our actions of obedience by his Holy Spirit. So, so as we pursue obedience to the word of God, we're not pursuing it on our own, but he is actually empowering that obedience. And so uh, it's a beautiful thing when, when God empowers the obedience of his people to his word, and that's where we want to live. I want to read Galatians chapter 5, verse 26 through chapter 6, verse 5 to you right off the bat this morning because we're going to spend a great deal of our time at the beginning of the sermon reviewing what we have seen over the last few weeks as we wrap up our look at this section. So we're going to read it once here at the beginning, we're going to do some review, and then I'll read it again and preach the part of it that we're going to look at closely today. Sound good? So you get it twice today. Actually, you'll get it three times today because this was part of your text in small group Bible study this morning, all right? How many of you were in small group Bible study this morning? Good. If you weren't, I want to invite you next week to be a part of that study, that fellowship time, that, that um, unity as we share our lives together. It's a beautiful thing. I hope that you'll be a part of it next week. So read with me Galatians chapter 5, starting in, let's just start in verse 25. This is what God's word says. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. For there, uh, let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are thankful for this gathering this morning. We're thankful for your word. Thankful for this particular passage in your word that we've looked at closely over the last month. We want to be doers of it. Not just hearers of it. Not just people who understand it who 
grasp the principles, but who exercise obedience to your word. And we are thankful that as we pursue obedience to your word, that we are not left to our own energy, our own devices, but you empower us as we seek to be obedient to your word. We look for the Holy Spirit's help as we bear one another's burdens. We look for the Holy Spirit's help as we restore the trespassing brothers amongst us. We look for your help as we bear our own load. Make us doers of your word and not hearers only. In Christ's name we pray. All right, so we'll start with review. Remember, all of what we have looked at over the last few weeks is really one big message uh, that we had to break into four little parts, which aren't so little, um, but, but look at them specifically uh, one week uh, to, the, to the next. So the first thing we did was we looked at the general principle that is stated in chapter 6, verse 2, when he says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love, right? I told you, first of all, that we must love each other enough to help each other bear the inevitable burdens in this life. I think these things will appear on the screen as we walk through them. These inevitable burdens of life, which are many and varied and threaten to crush us. Burdens that might be physical. Maybe you have some physical sickness or something like that that is a burden in your life. And we can come alongside you and bear that burden with you. Maybe you have a financial burden or a relational burden or an emotional burden or some kind of spiritual burden. We are called to love each other enough to help each other bear these inevitable burdens in life. So when we see someone under a burden like this, we are to run to them and we are to help them carry it. That's the first thing we looked at. I also told you on that first week that in order to do this well, we must be willing not only to bear one another's burdens, but number two, to share our own burdens with one another. Like if we're going to do this well, we, we can't hide the burdens that are about to crush us from our neighbors, from our brothers. We have to be willing to share those. And we need to acknowledge that we cannot bear a burden that we know nothing about. Last weekend, we received, um, gave to the Elijah Fund offering. And the Elijah Fund here at First Baptist Church is a great thing. Uh, we give money to help out folks who find themselves in a financial hardship um, so, that, so that we can help bridge the gap from one month to the next to get someone through. And I am confident that there are needs that could be met by the Elijah Fund specifically that we just never know anything about. Needs that the Elijah Fund would be glad to help out with, but cannot because they don't know about it, uh, maybe because of the pride of the person who has the need being completely unwilling to share that need. So you catch where I'm going with number two? Like if, if we are going to do well at bearing one another's burdens, we have to also do well about sharing our burdens with one another. I think if you are willing to transparently and vulnerably share your needs amongst this body, you will find no shortage of people willing to step in and help bear those burdens. Unfortunately, a lot of times we're too proud to share the burdens that we do have. On that first week, we also saw that one of the main hindrances to this mutual burden bearing is our boastfulness, our conceit, our pride, 
our selfishness, our self-centeredness, perhaps. And in chapter 5, verse 26, Paul gave us some insight into two ways that boastfulness comes out, two ways that conceit comes out. For one, it can look like superiority when we challenge one another in an effort to prove our greatness over one another. Or our boastfulness and pride can come out and look like inferiority when we envy one another and express some kind of false humility. This comes out when we say, I have nothing to offer the group. There's no way I could help anybody because woe is me, poor pitiful me. That is actually a form of pride that comes out in inferiority. And so the third thing I told you a couple of weeks ago was that we must beware of conceit and repent of all forms of it. Whether it's coming out in a superiority or an inferiority, we need to repent of all forms of conceit. That was week number one. Three big lessons from week number one. Then, week number two, we spent our time focusing on chapter 6, verse 1. That says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. This is the very specific application of the general principle laid out in chapter 6, verse 2. One of the very many ways that we bear one another's burdens is by humbly and gently restoring the one who is caught in a trespass. In fact, much of this section of scripture that we've been looking at for quite some time is referring to that specific situation. A brother gets caught in some kind of sin, and we who love them must not look the other way, We must not run the other way. Rather, we must seek to restore them. And we talked about how this process of restoration will not be painless. It will not be without pain. It might hurt quite a bit to be restored. Remember I told you that word restore there is the same word used for the setting of a broken bone, right? Something that is absolutely necessary to get back to a functional state, but something that is quite painful. But even in the pain... We are called to proceed with a spirit of gentleness. We are also called to proceed with great carefulness. Carefulness for our own souls in the process so that we are not also tempted to sin. So the lessons from that week were number four. Let's love one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin. That's part of what it looks like to love one another. Is when someone goes off the deep end of sin, we don't say... What was, the, what was the phrase in the, uh, in the Sunday school lesson? Not my circus, not my monkeys. I had never heard that before. And I want to be careful not to always use that phrase. When, when, we, when we see someone tumbling off into sin, we don't say, not my circus, not my monkeys. Rather, we run to them and we help them. We seek to restore the brother who is caught in sin. Now, I will admit to you, there are a thousand reasons why we would not do that. There are a thousand reasons why we would avoid such messy restoration. And one of the main ones is our own bad experience and our own painful memories of when this backfired in our own lives. But I implored you not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Not to throw the baby of, of loving confrontation that leads to restoration out with the bath, dirty bathwater of sinful pride or painful memories. We must continue to seek to be obedient to the Lord, which leads to number five. Not only do we love one another enough to restore one another when someone is caught in sin, we must do it the right way. 
We must do it with a spirit of gentleness and with an eye on our own souls. And after we talked about those things, I presented to you a couple of questions with which I am struggling because of this text. Number one, what do you do? What do you do when your effort at restoration fails? When your effort at restoration is rejected? Or when your effort at restoration seems to only make things worse? What do you do in those situations? And secondly, who is accountable for the trespassing brother's lack of restoration? So if the trespassing brother goes on in the trespass and never repents and is not restored, who is responsible for his lack of restoration? Those are two questions that come out of this text with which I myself personally am wrestling as we study this text. Fortunately, week number three, we got to deal with some of that as we look closely at verses 5 and 6, which say, verses 5 and 6, which say, For each one, no, four and five, but each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Here we saw this balancing lesson of personal accountability in light of all the talk about community responsibility. Maybe you remember the image of the triangle I I showed you last week where the community has a responsibility to the individual and the individual has a responsibility to the community and we all have an accountability to God for it. Do you remember that? In this text, it seems that Paul anticipates someone might be tempted to blame the community for his situation. So he commands us, as he commands us, to bear one another's burdens, to restore one another. It seems like he's aware that the person who is caught in the trespass might think, Well, they didn't do it. They didn't bear my burden. They didn't restore me. And so in an effort to counter that wrong mentality, he transitions at the end of the passage from the community to the individual accountability. And I told you four things that week. Number one, which is number six in our overall list, the community has a responsibility to help the individual. Community really does have a responsibility to help the individual. That's what this text has been about. We bear burdens, we restore, we rebuke, we encourage, we warn, we teach, we help. And we must take responsibility to do those things and actually do it. But number seven, the individual also has a responsibility to connect with the community. Or to stay connected, to stay involved to continue walking hand in hand with the community that has been given to you by God to help you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good thing that God hasn't called us to a relationship with him and then isolated us from other believers. It's a good thing that as God calls us to relationship with him, he also calls us to relationship with other believers so that we can walk hand in hand. This is one of God's God's wonderful graces to us as believers in Jesus Christ our other believers in Jesus Christ, friends in the faith who can help us walk with the Lord. Number eight, we talked about the community having an accountability to God for its interaction with the individual. Like we must be asking ourselves regularly, did we do what we should have done? In the case of the trespassing brother who needs to be restored, did we pursue restoration like we should? And that's the way I talked about it last week. I talked about it with plural pronouns last week. Did we do what we should have done? 
And as I chewed on that a little bit this week, I realized that's not the right question. The question that we need to be asking is, did I do what I should have done? Did you do what you should have done? Because this accountability that we have to God uh, for our response to the individual is an individual accountability to God. Like, Like we won't stand together as a church before God and say, did we do what we should have done in such and such situation? But rather, I will stand before God and say, did I do what I should have done with what I knew about a situation? That's a question we need to ask because the community is accountable to God for its interaction with the individual. And then number nine, the individual is accountable to God for his own soul. And and really what we talked about here was the gospel uh, that ultimately, ultimately our only plea before the Lord at the final judgment is for mercy and grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, right? It's not about how well or how, uh, how great we've handled the situation, but about appealing to the blood of Christ. We talked about how we will each answer for our own souls. This is a Baptist doctrine. I didn't call it this last week, but if you want to read more about this, it's a Baptist doctrine called soul competency. Um, in other words, I will not answer for my children at the judgment. Children will answer for my children at the judgment. And I will stand before God accountable for my own soul on the day of judgment. So will you. So we need to recognize that we have that accountability before God as individuals for our own soul. Well, this week, that was all what we've done for the last month. So if you missed the last month, you haven't missed anything now. You're all caught up. This week, we're going to spend our time looking closely at chapter 6, verse 3. And the warning that seems to hang over this whole section against pride, arrogance, conceit, and self-absorption. We need this warning. We need this warning so that we will do this. So that we will love each other enough to bear one another's burdens. So that we will love each other enough to restore the trespassing brother. And we need this warning so that when we do it, We don't get all puffed up in the process. We need a right view of ourselves in order to be helpful to one another in the walk of discipleship. Like if we have a twisted view of ourselves, one that is either um, inappropriately puffed up and proud and arrogant or inappropriately deflated in some kind of inferiority complex, we will not be helpful to one another in the walk of discipleship. So we need an accurate view of ourselves to be helpful to one another in the walk of discipleship. And we pray that God will give that to us as we study his word today. So let's read it again. With all of this in mind, like I said, I would love to have preached this all in one shot, but there just isn't time. So with all of this in mind, let's read once again, starting in chapter 5, verse 25. God's word says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, Envying one another. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3 is our focus today. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. 
for each one will bear his own load. Now, John Piper has a really interesting take on this passage. And he introduces his explanation of this passage by a provocative question. He says, who is in danger in this passage of Scripture? And I want us to consider that question for a moment. There is real danger here, and there is a strong warning here, and a clear directive. But the question is, to whom is the warning, and to whom is the directive given? Piper goes on and he explains it further. He says, who is in danger in this passage of Scripture? According to verse 1, somebody has been overtaken in a trespass. Somebody's sin has come to light. He was caught spending the weekend with another woman. Her lie to the welfare people has been detected. His tax evasion was discovered. The source of the rumor has been found. Her constant belittling of her husband has spread for all to see. There is transgression in the church and people know about it. Who is in danger? Whom does Paul spend five verses warning about what might happen to them in this situation of discovery and restoration? The one who has fallen or the one who is about to help him stand? Piper says, every verse but one has a big yellow light flashing caution, caution. And the message of warning is directed not to the one who has fallen, but to those who aim to help him. It's pretty interesting. Especially when you talk about someone who's caught in a trespass. The text is about the one who is caught in a trespass. But Piper is saying here that the warning, the caution light, and the message overall is not for the one who's caught in the trespass, but for those who would seek to restore him. We are the ones who must be careful in that situation. Now, the Bible has much to say to and about the one who has fallen, the one who is caught in the trespass. And we must remember that. This text is not intended to let that one off the hook. This text is not intended to say the burden is on the community and not the individual who's caught in the trespass. That's not what is intended by this text, although it is often used that way. So we would look to other places in Scripture that would give direction about how to talk to and about the one who is caught in trespass. But this text seems to have a focus on those who are spiritual who are called to restore the trespassing brother. And it tells us, essentially, we better do it, and we better do it carefully. We better seek restoration, and we better seek restoration carefully and fight against pride in the process. It is often said that the root of the first sin, and maybe even of all sin, is the sin of pride. Chew on that for a minute. Many theologians would say that the root of the first sin and the root of nearly all subsequent sin is the sin of pride. Augustine said it like this, pride is the commencement of all sin because it was this which overthrew the devil from whom arose the origin of sin. And afterwards, when his malice and envy pursued man, who was yet standing up in his righteousness, in his uprightness, it subverted him in the same way in which he himself fell. For the serpent, in fact, only sought for the door of pride whereby to enter when he said, ye shall be as gods. So basically what Augustine is saying here is he's saying that pride was the root of the first sin and all subsequent sin. And when he talks about the first sin, he's not going first to the Garden of Eden, but he's going back to the fall of Satan. 
and I would draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, when we think about the fall of Satan. Now, many scholars believe that this passage in Isaiah is a reference to the fall of Satan and not just to the king of Babylon. It, it, is, it is quite clearly a reference to the king of Babylon, but a lot of scholars would interpret it in saying it's not just about the king of Babylon, but it is also a reference to the fall of Satan. So, uh, and that corresponds with Jude chapter 1 verse 6 that says the angels did not stay within their own position of authority. He, he talks about some kind of, Jude talks about some kind of rebellion of angels, which sounds a lot like Isaiah 14. Read it with me on the board. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down into Sheol to the recesses of the pit. A lot of scholars would look at Isaiah chapter 14 and say, this, this is the sin of Satan. It was a sin of pride. He said, I will be God. I will not be a servant of God. I will not be a messenger of God. I will not be uh, a slave of God. I will be God. And as a result of that pride and the effort to assert that pride, he was cast down, right? And so Augustine says that the first sin, the sin of Satan, was ultimately the sin of pride. And he argues that the first sin of man was also the sin of pride. Read with me in Genesis chapter 3, a scene with which you are probably familiar. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave to her husband also with her and he ate. Then both of the, eye, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Augustine argues that when, he, when Satan says to them, you will be like God, it is that, that trigger, it is that phrase that triggers the sin of pride in Eve and Adam. Want to be like God, not servants of God, not subjects of God, not worshipers of God, but want to be like God. And so pride is what is fueling that first sin. And I think Augustine is on the right track here because of my own experience with sin. Most often, my own sin is fueled by pride. It is fueled by some kind of desire for position, desire for place, desire for pleasure, but it's all self-centered. My, my fuel that, that, that leads to sin is pride, and, and I don't think I'm alone in that. I think that we see pride as a devastating a devastating sin that leads to greater sin. And so this text that is talking about our love for one another 
our burden bearing, our restoration of one another is constantly warning us against pride as we engage in one another. Notice that verse 3 starts with the word for. For, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That connects verse 3 with verse 2 and gives some foundation for it. He says, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. For, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, this pride, this thinking you're something when you are nothing, is lurking underneath the surface of all of our interactions with one another. And we must kill pride in order to love one another well. We must be humble in order to love one another well and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So the call to bear burdens comes with a warning against thinking the wrong things about ourselves. He says, if we think we are something, when we are nothing, we deceive ourselves. And we tend to think we are something, right? And we are nothing, right? I quoted Spurgeon last weekend at the SBA annual meeting when he says, be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. (laughs) Good news, everybody. You're nothing. And when you start thinking you're something, you're crazy. That's what he says. You deceive yourself. You deceive yourself when you think you're something and you're actually nothing. And this is a constant theme throughout scriptures. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. It says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Have you ever experienced that in your life? You walk into a situation and you think, I know all about this. This meeting has not been complete till I got here. And now, we're, now we'll get it done. Because I'm here. Have you ever walked into that and then realized, I don't know anything? I've experienced that. And I think you have as well. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. One of the best things we can do in life is say, I don't know. I don't know all that I want to know. I don't know all that I should know. And I'm willing to learn. I'm willing to learn from anybody. Uh, Romans chapter 12 speaks a similar truth. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Remember, here in Galatians, he's saying, If you think you're something when you're nothing, you're crazy. And in Romans, he says, Think of yourself soberly, not crazy. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sound judgment about yourself. See yourself accurately so that you can help your brothers and sisters. And then Proverbs 26.12 is the gut punch of them all. He says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Can I rewind to the meeting? The meeting that you stroll into thinking you have all the answers and prove that you're really just a fool? It is wise of us to recognize who we really are. Tom Schreiner said, if we give in to our pride, we are out of our minds. And we will not be helpful to anyone if we are full of pride. But all of this begs the question, how in the world could the act of bearing one another's burdens, specifically in restoring sinning brothers, lead to pride? Like, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like something where our pride would be on display, does it? 
Like if I'm going to wade into someone else's mess and try to hold up the burden with them, it doesn't seem like something that would be my pride on display. Or if I'm going to wade into someone's mess and say, how can I help you? Let me help you be restored. Let me set your broken bone. Like that doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that would lead to pride, where my pride would be on display. And yet the warning is there every time. So how could the act of bearing one another's burdens lead to pride? I think there are three ways. First, it seems like everything can lead to pride. (laughs) Whether I'm bearing one another's burdens or washing the dishes, I feel like everything in my life could lead to pride, could lead to a display of my pride. I am so prone to pride that nearly everything I do could be a display of my pride. Does that make sense to you? Even sacrificial service can be a source of pride. I'll give you an example of this, actually a a contrasting example of this. I've told you before about um, an internship I did when I was in college at a church in South Florida, a big church in South Florida, and we helped out with youth ministry for a few months in the summer, and uh, they needed a piano. Like the piano had broken, They, they needed to replace the piano. And there was a lady in the church whose name was Iona, and she was super rich. In fact, the kids in the church called her Iona South Florida. Like, I own it all. (laughs) Uh, She was was super wealthy, and she knew about this need in the church for a piano. And so she approached the the pastor, and she said, I want to buy the church a piano. And not just any piano. I want to buy top-of-the-line Steinway grand piano. It'll be great. And, And the pastor was like, man, that sounds great. And she said, but first week it gets played on the platform, I want there to be uh, recognition of me and my family for our donation of this piano. I want there to be a plaque on the piano and in the foyer that recognizes Iona South Florida and her family as the donors of this great Steinway piano and on and on and on. She wanted all the, all the praise, all the recognition for the donation of this piano. And so the pastor rightly said, we don't need that piano. I own a South Florida. If that's the way it's going to go, we'll find another way to get a piano, right? So even in what seems to be a sacrificial service in providing for the needs of the church can be a source of pride. Now, that's the ugly side of it. Let me tell you the beautiful side of it. And this is something that's happened here at First Baptist Church of Harrisburg over the last few weeks. Maybe you caught wind that someone donated a 15-passenger van to the church, like gave it to us as a gift. And you don't know who it is. Because in the process of talking with this family about this donation, they over and over and over again said, we don't want anybody to know we are doing this. We don't want anybody to know our names. In fact, we went to such great lengths that the people who usually know who gave what at First Baptist Church, the folks who count the money, they don't even know who this is. There are exactly three people outside the family who made that donation who know who made this donation. That's beautiful. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's someone who's not going to let their pride creep in to even a sacrificial uh, provision for the church at large, right? So, So what I'm telling you is we need to be careful about pride because in everything we do, our pride can sneak in. And we've got to fight against it. Even in the sacrificial things we do for others, we've got to fight against our pride. Don't be like Iona, South Florida. Be like the player to be named later or never at all. 
right? Let's, let's, let's be like them and not like Iona. Secondly, first was everything can lead to pride because we're so prone to it. Secondly, if we do this regularly, like if we are involved regularly in bearing people's burdens, if we are involved regularly in helping restore the trespassing brother, we can begin to think, I'm the man. I'm the man. People constantly come to me when they need a load carried. People constantly come to me when they need some help. We can begin to think, I am a spiritual giant. I give to others. I don't need help. I give help. Tom Schreiner expresses it this way. I am the fountain. Everybody bring your cup. If we are regularly involved in helping bear one another's burdens, if we are regularly involved in restoring erring brothers, we can begin to think that we never need that ministry ourselves. And our pride can creep in. And it's this superiority conceit that we talked about a few weeks ago on display. I don't need any help. I'm better than all of you. In fact, I'm so much better than all of you that I can help all of you. And I will never need your help in the process. We've got to guard against that. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. The third thing, the third way our pride can creep in is if we never do this. This is the opposite of number two. If we're always doing it, we can get all puffed up and say, I never need any help. If we never do it, we can begin to think, I've got nothing to offer to anyone. I need so much help myself. How could I ever help anyone else? And I tend to think this is where most of us struggle, not with, not with number two, but with number three. Where we have this inferiority complex where we say, I'm such a mess. I'm constantly needing other people's help. How could I ever be helpful to someone else? How could I ever help someone else carry their burdens when I can't carry any of mine? And so it's this inferiority conceit that's coming out. And we've got to fight against that too. Because I'm telling you, every single one of you can help someone else in this room. Every single one of you can help someone else bear a burden. Every single one of you, no matter what kind of baggage you've got in your background, you can help restore an erring brother. Every single one of you not only can, but should, and even must help your neighbor. So don't buy into this pride that says, this weird form of pride that says, I could never help anyone else. I need too much help myself. No, no, no. We have all been called to help one another. So here's the application. There's only one thing today. Aren't you thankful for that? It has four parts, though. Here's the big statement. As we seek to love one another, and as we seek to bear one another's burdens, let's ask God to help us see ourselves clearly. Let's ask God to help, help us see ourselves clearly to see how weak and needy we are in order that we may remain humble, right? So that, that's, that's the warning that's kind of hanging over the whole text. As we seek to help one another, bear one another's burdens, and restore one another, we need God to help us see ourselves clearly so that we're not proud, but we remain humble. Part number one of that is we need to acknowledge that we are weak with sin. We are weak with our own sin we are weak with our own sinfulness. We are weak with our own sinful tendencies. One of my favorite songs that we sing says, it has a line that gets me every time. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And, and I need to sing that song regularly to remind myself that I am prone to do that. 
that I am prone to wander. I am prone to leave the God I love, and I need to feel that. Lord, I feel it. That's really the part that gets me when we sing it. Lord, I feel it. And I need to regularly acknowledge that I am weak. I am weak with my own sin. I am weak with my own sinfulness. And acknowledging that, remembering that, will help me stay humble so that I can be helpful. That's number one. Number two, we need to remember that we are needy of grace from him. This is basic gospel truth here. Like if I'm going to be helpful to you in bearing your burdens, if I'm going to be helpful for you in the restoration of you in your trespass, I need to constantly remember that I need grace from God. That I need the gospel. That I am a sinner who deserves nothing but judgment and wrath and hell from an eternally and infinitely holy God. I need to regularly remember that I deserve flames. That I deserve the full cup of his wrath. And I need to regularly remember that he loved me while I was a still sinner. While I was still a sinner, he loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And I need to remember that Jesus, on the cross, took my sin upon his shoulders. It was counted to his account, and he suffered the punishment for my sin. I need to remember that, that Jesus took my sin and died for me. I need to remember that he died for me. I need to remember that they put him in the tomb. I need to remember on the third day he rose in victory over sin and death and hell. And I need to remember that God has saved me by grace, by grace alone as a gift. It is totally undeserved. It is not merited. I haven't worked for it. I haven't earned it. It is completely, illogically undeserved. He has saved me by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And now I'm his child. I was his enemy. And now I'm his friend. I'm his son. He's adopted me into the family. It's who I am. I need to remember that I've got a new heart. I've got a new name. I've got a new life. I've got a new eternal destination. Everything about me is new. I need to remember that all the time or else I won't be helpful to you. If I get to the point where I think I am not needy of grace from God, I will not be at all helpful to you. I will not be able to bear your burdens. I will not be able to restore you when you err. If I think I don't need grace, it is only when I remember every day that I owe to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Same song, right, Laura? Same song. It's good for us to remember that. It will make us helpful to one another. And third, I need to remember that I am needy of help from others. If I am going to be helpful to you and you're going to be helpful to me, We're going to need to remember that we are needy of help from others. I cannot, I should not, and I need not walk this road alone. God has given me the Spirit by His grace, and He's given me you by His grace. I should not, I need not, must not walk alone in this life. So, in other words... If we think this process of bearing burdens 
is a one-way street, it'll never be helpful to anyone. But if as I'm bearing your burdens, I'm inviting you to bear mine, it's a beautiful thing. And we'll walk together in humility and pride will be crushed out. But We've got to guard ourselves against this pride. We need to recognize that we are sinful, we are weak, and we are needy so that we can be helpful to one another. Let's stand together in prayer. God, thank you for the grace, the grace of our spiritual family that you've provided for us in the gospel. We want to live well together. We want to bear one another's burdens well. We want to restore one another when we're caught in trespass. So we pray that you will crush pride in us. That we will fight pride in us. That we will recognize that we are weak with sin. That we will always remember that we are needy of grace from you. And that we'll never forget that we are needy of help from others. God, we, we are terrible at this. But we want to grow. want to get better at loving one another so we pray that you'll empower our pursuit of love we pray for men and women and boys and girls who are needy of grace from you and they don't even know it they are desperately in need of grace from you their eyes are blinded to it pray today that you'll open their eyes to the reality of your holiness to the reality of their sinfulness, to the glories of Christ's death on their behalf. I pray that you give them faith to believe in Jesus Christ and repentance to turn away from sin and that you'll save them by your grace for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.